Over the past couple of decades, Isabel Molina Guzman has built institutions that have redressed enduring inequalities in the field of communication and media studies. How does one lead coalitions for change? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Isabel Molina Guzman in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today Isabel Molina Guzman. Isabel is professor in communication and Latina Latino studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where she is also affiliated professor in gender and women's studies and in Caribbean and Latin American studies. In addition to that, she is currently also Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at UIUC. Isabel did her BA at Penn State University in University Park, and then her master's and her PhD at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where she was advised by the extraordinary Larry Gross. She is the author of two very important books, Dangerous Curves, Latina Bodies in the US Media, published by New York University Press in 2010, and Latinas slash Latinos on television, colorblind humor on post-racial TV, which was published by the University of Arizona Press in 2018. She also has published over two dozen articles and essays, is the editor of the Journal of Feminist Media Studies, and was a founder of the ERIC division at ICA uh, more than 15 years ago. Isabel, welcome to El Café Latinx. Oh, thank you. I wish I was having an actual cup of coffee, but I didn't. <laughs> I can order one for you if you want. Wonderful. I'd love a latte or a café con leche would be fun. Café con leche is coming. In the meantime, then, while we wait for that, tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Oh, that is a good question and, um, and, a, and, a, and a good story, I think. Um, I was intending to be a journalist. Um, I had uh, uh, basically spent my entire undergraduate career at Penn State working for the daily newspaper, um, the Penn State Daily Collegian. Um, I decided though that I would use my undergraduate education rather than to learn a skill 
to learn the skill of critical thinking and writing and 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 to be you know kind of engaged and informed i really um, as the first one in my family to get a college education, I wanted that experience of like that intellectual experience. I didn't know that's what I wanted, but that I, I knew I didn't want to be in courses where I was going to be taught how to write a headline or how to write a story. Um, Cause I felt like I could learn that by practice. So I became um, a major in communication theory, a research in theory. And um, you know, became the editor-in-chief of the Daily Collegian, uh, interviewed for newspaper jobs, had two newspaper jobs lined up when I was taking Professor Angara Valdivia's class at Penn State on women minorities in the media. And she had a journal that she, uh, you know, we had to do a journal for class where we would reflect on the readings um, that we had done that week. And after one of them, um, she wrote in the side margin, I'm like, have you thought about graduate school? You should come talk to me. And I honestly was like, graduate school? <laughs> I'm like, what is that? Like, I never heard of this graduate school thing. And so I did, I went to talk to her in her office hours and she said, well, you need to become a professor and you need to go to graduate school so that you can become a professor. What you want to do is, you know, you ask these fantastic questions. You, you know, you, you, you know, this is what you'll get to do. And in graduate school, you'll get to ask these questions. You'll get to really explore the, the topics and the issues that are interested to you. You'll, you'll get to teach, you'll get, you know, and I thought, wow, yeah, that's what I want to do. I, I, you know, at the very end of my senior year, I was like, that I, I'm, 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 I'm going to go to graduate school. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to do it. And she goes, well, you have to take the GRE. Okay. I had missed all the deadlines for the GRE. So I, I basically got into like the very last one I could take. You're going to go to the Annenberg school and these are going to be your letter writers. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So, um, so that's the way it happened. I took the GRE I, I, I met with um, the woman who was doing graduate admissions at a minority um, conference, uh, a conference set up for underrepresented students who were interested in graduate school. Um, you know, I, I let her know who I was and what my interests were. Um, I, I think she flagged my application um, and my letter writers, two of them were Larry Gross's uh, students. <laughs> <laughs> Betty Kaufman and Lisa Henderson, um, who were also at Penn State at the time. So um, they, you know, um, they wrote my letters along with Angela Valdivia and surprise or not surprise, I got in. And that's how I became a graduate student. I mean, it was totally the spur of the moment change of careers because I, you know, I was going to be a journalist. <laughs> I had jobs lined up. I was trying to figure out where am I going to go? Am I going to make the move to Connecticut or am I going to make the move somewhere else? And um, in graduate school, I didn't know what it was and it wasn't in my path. And, um, and, and so that's how I ended up at Annenberg and um, not quite knowing what I was going to do there, but that I, you know, was called to be there for some reason. It was called to that profession, um, you know, so you can blame Angara Valdivia for all of this. <laughs> Congratulate her more than uh, like her for her foresight. 
So did you apply to other programs or just to Penn? I didn't, I didn't, because I had missed the deadline for almost, it was so late in the cycle that um, I, I just lucked into going to that conference uh, for underrepresented students and, um, you know, and, and Annenberg happened to be there and I happened to meet with, with, with Pam and, um, and it, it just, you know, I just lucked into it. Um, you know, I, I applied to Annenberg. Um, that was the only one I had time to apply to. <laughs> And so, and I got in, so I thought, okay, I guess that's where I'm going. I'm going to Annenberg. Um, I didn't have any clue. I mean, I had, you know, I was a communications major. So I knew all the um, main paradigms in communications, right? Um, I, I understood those. I understood political economy. I understood industries. I understood effects. I understood, um, critical cultural approaches, um, you know, but I, I didn't, um, I didn't have a sense of, of what Annenberg, what was there. Um, you know, I didn't have a sense of what was there. And, you know, in, in my young naivete, right, like, I have to do something after graduation, I can't be unemployed, I turned down these jobs, I have to go to graduate school now. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I went and it was, um, it was a little bit of a rude awakening, because um, I wasn't, I didn't, unlike graduate students today, who I think are so savvy about, you know, um, taking the time to meet professors, to meet graduate students, to really analyze the program of study um, and to make, you know, really strategic decisions of where they wanna go because of who they wanna work with. I didn't do any of that. And so graduate school was a really rude awakening, um, especially at the Annenberg School at Penn because um, it was not very diverse and, um, racially or economically. Um, I was the only state school girl, um, you know, the only student coming from a state school um, to um, to Penn. And, and so it was it was just really it was a rough transition. And I almost didn't make it through that first year because after the first semester, I was just like, what am I doing here? Like, I can't, you know, keep up like like all graduate students, you know, I compared myself to others and I'm, I'm like, I'm just not as good as them. And I don't belong, like, I don't feel like I belong um, in the space. And, um, you know, I was, I had my end of the semester meeting with Professor Gross and I was gonna walk into his office in December and basically say, um, you know, that I wasn't gonna return in the spring. And I sat down and, you know, getting the courage up and, you know, he's like, um, you know, we had to meet with him to talk about our final. Um, and so he hands it back to me and he goes, this was the best final I think I've read in this class in a long time. And I, I was like, what? And he goes, you did, you know, and then he went through and he talked about what I did and how, you know, how he was impressed. And I thought, and it kept me from saying, I'm not coming back in the spring. Because <laughs> I thought, okay, if Professor Gross sees something in me that, um, that is, you know, if he thinks I can do this, maybe I can. And so that is the reason I stayed was because of his intervention. Um, and he was great because I was such an outlier um, in, you know, in what I wanted to study. I wanted to study about, 
you know, issues, issues of race and inequality. And I wanted to use qualitative approaches, um, interviewing and focus groups. And, um, and he was open to all of that and just created a space for me to be able to do my own thing and, and supported me to, till I graduated. And so I will be grateful. I, I am very grateful to him um, as an advisor for allowing for, you know, and he probably doesn't even know that that was like such a moment for me, um, you know, that I almost left. And if it wouldn't have been for his response to that final, I probably wouldn't have completed my PhD. Wow. And how was the, the journey in the subsequent years? Um, you know, uh, as like, you know, a, a first generation undergrad, first generation PhD, I didn't really know what I was doing. I actually managed during the last two years of my PhD to start a tenure track position at a women's liberal arts college, which I really loved. But um, I loved the students and I loved the faculty, but hated working in that small environment um, where you were being micromanaged by the president of the college. And so I kind of thought, you know what, I'm going back to being a communications professional. And I got my PhD and I quit that tenure track position to take on um, a position as a uh, communications director for a nonprofit collective in Philadelphia. And um, and I was in that job for about six months when I realized when when during every spare minute I had, I was working on on scholarship, on things that were happening that I wanted to write about. And um, and so, you know, I, and I submitted a paper for a conference that was happening in Philadelphia at the time and it got accepted. And I ran into Angie again at that conference because she saw the title of my paper and said, hey, we're working on the same thing. So she came to the panel and she was like, you need to leave that job. You need to tenure track position. And I'm like, I think you're right. I think I find myself like not really wanting to do my job, but find myself really wanting to write about all of the stuff that was happening in the world. Um, you know, Elian Gonzalez at the time. And, um, and so um, that's how I actually ended up back in academia <laughs> was, I realized I'm not good with nine to five, five days a week. And, um, and then I found myself, rather than thinking about my work at the nonprofit about my, I found myself doing academic writing. And so I eventually found my way to a postdoc at the University of Illinois and Latino studies, um, which is where I really gained, um, really self-taught myself um, the field, as well as that's where I had this amazing engagement with, um, at, you know, critical ethnic studies scholars um, that really, I think, shaped this last project that I talked about um, during the webinar. It's because of them that I think I was able to begin asking the questions that I ended up asking in my books and in this in this final project. And so I'm forever indebted to, to being able to work in that space with those colleagues, because I think they made me the scholar that I am today. And again, that's another funny intervention by Angara Valdivia, because she apparently, I, I had an appointment at a, at a branch campus of Purdue University 
and I was still doing my faculty duty there while, while being a postdoc. And she was like, what are you doing? You're not going back, you're staying here. We're hiring you as a faculty member. I'm like, what? And so, and that's what happened. I went on the market that year and I got an offer to stay at University of Illinois and the rest is great. Right, what a great history. Um, so I have questions in, in, in two directions. I start with the first one. How do you choose your topics? Right, you mentioned that you were in this nonprofit organization as communications director, and you kept thinking about topics that you wanted to investigate and write about. Um, and then you mentioned the case of Elian Gonzalez. Um, uh, so, how do you choose your topics? What criteria or what practices? So, how does that happen? Yeah, so it actually comes from like moments of discomfort, like when I I'm in a either watching or reading the news. I don't watch the news very often. Reading the news or engaged in conversations with um, students or other faculty members, and something doesn't feel right, <laughs> and you know, and something feels like, you know, there's something off. There's something off in this discourse, and um, and I think there's something happening that. Um, that is, you know, creating inequality in a, such a subtle way that I want to really explore and figure out what is what is actually happening, um, you know, in in the story or in these interactions, and um, and and that's how I've always come to my topics is like from this moment of discomfort, um, you know, this latest project, I did a little bit of autoethnography, but. You know, it really comes from those moments of discomfort in my family around blackness, and um, you know, um, both you know the the anti-black racism that I witnessed within my family, but also like the negotiations of like um, my own skin color with my relatives, and um, and so that's really what's fueled this project is thinking through. Um, through that and then thinking through the experience of moving into the US into you know um, the space where um, outside of the academy people don't really know what to they making sense of who I am is really shaped by who they are and so that's always been for me what has guided my research questions this sort of moment of discomfort when I'm observing something happening or um, watching a movie or watching a TV show or reading the news and just thinking that there's something there that I want to turn a lens on to raise critical, so sort of help people learn how to make sense of it in more critical ways. Very interesting. And now, how has been the expression and the experience of that, not only with regards to the questions and the texts that come as a result of answering those questions, but in other aspects of the scholarly experience, um, in the classroom, uh, in the conference setting, etc. Um, could you tell us a little bit more how that has sort of unfolded in your career? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I'm a horrible networker, so <laughs> conferences are always painful because I, um, 
I am very, I'm not shy, but I'm not, um, it's very hard for me to put myself out um, with people I don't know or have a connection with. And so conferences have always been painful for me. And, um, and so that has been a learning process uh, you know, of learning to put, make myself vulnerable and, um, and, and force myself to make those connections. Um, it helped a lot when I was involved in creating um, the Ethnicity, Race, and Communication Group because that forced me to have to social network um, and raise these uncomfortable questions with people that were like, you know, huge names in the field. And so, um, you know, that that helped a lot. That helped a lot in sort of gaining um, self-confidence and, and also making... Um, making my voice heard and my research heard and, and, and being able to engage people at that level, that was a really rewarding experience. Um, and in the classroom, it's just amazing. I love it. I'm lucky um, in that, um, you know, I have an appointment in Latino studies. So my classes are always so diverse. They're just so rich. Um, the experiences of the students that are there are so rich and I get so much energy from them. Um, and they push me to think about like the questions I'm asking in more complicated ways um, and are always introducing me to the new examples, new text, new um, issues that, I, that I'm not aware of because I'm much older than them. Um, and so I, I think those two spaces have been so generative for me in different ways. Excellent. Now could you tell us a little bit more about uh, Eric, um, you know, the ethnicity, ethnicity and Race in Communication Division at ICA? It's been more than 15 years. I think it was founded in 05. Mm -hmm. um, um, how was the process of developing that division? Um, you know, the thinking behind it and then the bureaucratic aspect of getting it started, you know, institutionalize it. And, and your views on how it has evolved over time and the impact it has had in the association in general. Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a uh, interesting history. So I had always been, um, as an Annenberg student, we were always encouraged or mentored to think of ICA as the primary place we needed to present our work and where we needed to be engaged, where we need to do our networking. And so I'd been attending it as a graduate student for a long time and had always found it difficult to figure out where my work fit, like what division did it fit in? Um, I knew where it could get presented, but I didn't feel like that was the right fit. Like I was engaged with the right audience. Um, I always felt like in panels, I was like, the extra, the kind of odd person out in this, you know, odd, you know, mix of um, of people uh, addressing maybe a loose topic that all rela that related to all of us, and um, and so when I began my tenure track job, I you know was attending ICA and just really feeling like, where is the community of scholars working in this area in communications that I should be engaged in? They're kind of like split all over the, the conference. And there wasn't really, I'd never felt like there was a space, both intellectual, where um, 
people who are interested in issues of inequality, of race, of diaspora, of ethnicity could gather intellectually to, um, you know, to exchange ideas. And it also felt very isolating because ICA at the time was itself not very diverse. It wasn't very global. It wasn't very ethnically or racially diverse. And I remember complaining to, about it to Larry Gross at, in New Orleans. Um, you know, what is going on? Like I've been attending this conference for years and it, it like it's like, where is the space for this? And he just looked at me, he's like, well, if you want the space, go create it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Just make your own interest group. And so I was like, fine, I will. <laughs> and so I had some like loose leaf paper that I went around during one of the receptions and um, and just basically walked up to people and said, um, you know, walked up to the president at the time and said, I would like to create this division. Please sign my petition. Uh, why? And I'm like, this is why. And, you know, and I, I have a lot of interesting conversations with people about why do we need this interest group? How, why is it not in other, you know, like, why can't it be in another division? Like, why can't you do it here? Why can't you do it there? And I spent that conference just walking around collecting signatures and I got them within like, I was surprised how quickly I got the signatures and, and it was much easier then than it is now to create an interest group and um, submitted it and bam, there I was. I got the call from Michael Haley, your interest group has been approved. So you must come to the next conference, blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, and then, you know, to kind of help me kick things off, I roped in a Professor Kumarini, uh, Kumarini Silva to kind of help me uh, put together that first, uh, the first meeting and, and kind of think through the bylaws and, and get the group going. I was the first chair, she was the first co-chair, and then ended up being the second chair, et cetera. But yeah, that's that's how it happened. Um, you know, I needed, I wanted to create a space not just for me, but for others who were. And I was so surprised that first conference by the number of papers we got, and um, from all over the world, tackling these topics. And um, you know, and I, we, that was one of the first times they were doing a competition for posters for poster presentations, and our division won one of them by this German scholar that was doing some really interesting work on race in Germany. And, um, you know, and, and so for me, that was just amazing to see. And, and I think the success of the division has continued to grow. Um, obviously we became a, a division very quickly because our membership grew fairly quickly. And, um, and it seems to be in a fairly steady state now um, like always, there's tensions, I think, in every division over, over the focus and um, not so much methods. It's always been very methodologically inclusive, but the focus, right, um, versus, you know, like, is it about race? Is it about ethnicity? Is it about diaspora? Where is the transnational? Um, you know, where is the global? Um, so those tensions, I think, are... Um, are what's kind of being worked out now in the division, but um, it's been impressive to see. And, and I love the fact that at conferences, I, a lot of, you know, when I know somebody's going for the first time, a person of color is going for the first time, a scholar of color, and they ask me, you know, questions about the conference, I'm like, make sure you go to the ethnicity and race meeting group and, and, um, and reception. 
and and they're always like, I'm so glad you recommended that. <laughs> I I was beginning to worry that there wasn't a space for me here. And then I went there and I realized, oh, this is where my space is. So um, so I'm, you know, I'm I'm just really happy that it exists and and that um, you know, again, Larry Gross challenged me and I was like, fine, I'll create this interest. <laughs> walking around my sad little notebook paper um getting signatures uh but that's how it happened very interesting and now where do you see the conversation on these topics not only within the division but within ica uh in general and the field as a whole where do you see it currently where do you hope it goes next and how much the past of having and not having these conversations has informed where we are now and where we might be able to go in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think about some of the really um, difficult conversations that are happening both in National Communication Association and in ICA, where they have been challenged about the systemic racism within the organizations itself, right? The structure of the organizations. Um, and then the, and how that has infiltrated to the journals themselves and other you know sort of um, artifacts of intellectual right production of, of, of knowledge and um, and so we're at a really interesting moment I think where intellectually we're having to think about these issues in ways that certainly when I started as an academic twenty or so years ago it wasn't the case. Um, you know, issues of ethnicity and race, Latinidad, were often just a variable in, you know, quantitative surveys or effect studies. Um, and, um, you know, and eventually it became core or central to the, to the, to the project, you know, to the research project itself. And now, you know, as I edit the Journal of Feminist Media Studies, I see how it touches almost every every journal that I, every submission that I see, um, you know, there's an element of that that needs to be touched upon. That you know, you you can't almost um, it becomes hard to talk about what is happening um, in the world or in the field of communications without at least being mindful or aware of how it's shaped by inequality, how it's shaped about, how it's shaped within capitalist structures. And so I think that's the moment that we're in now is really trying to figure out, um, you know, and I know that it's a tense filled moment, right? It's not like, you know, there's tensions there. Um, between those of us who have always, you know, kind of pulled in that direction, and then, you know, more dominant paradigms in the field, which feel relatively, um, feel that they should be relatively untouched by um, some of the, um, the sort of gaze on issues of inequality and race and um, gender, etc. And so I, I think we're in an interesting moment to see uh, how these conversations are going to potentially reshape those dominant communication paradigms um, 
of the future. I, I don't know. We'll have to just see what happens. Um, we'll have to see what happens. I mean, all of it depends on like what graduate students, you know, who goes to graduate school, who ends up being a faculty member, um, you know, and what gets published, what gets presented at these conferences. But, you know, I think like in every other institution in the United States and around the world, um, you know, our academic conferences and our journals are having to reckon with some of these questions. And, uh, and I have to assume that that's going to shape the field in the future, but we'll have to see. And how is that shaping the university as an institution itself? I mean, in addition to your regular teaching and research and journal editing, etc., you have a, an important administrative position in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, which is the largest at UIUC, right? Yeah. Um, you are Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion. How do you see these conversations shaping uh, academic practices in general, not, not just in the field of communication or media studies? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think um, it's interesting because um, the college, you know, just completed its um, strategic plan and issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion ended up being core throughout that strategic plan. And so it, it kind of shapes everything we do now, at least centrally in the college. And I think um, I think departments are, you know, I mean, it's been amazing to me. For instance, um, some some of the departments um, in the science units, which, you know, this is not part of their empirical focus at all. You know, they're looking they're looking at the stars, they're looking at black holes. Um, you know, have embraced the fact that they know their future depends on having a diversity of thought and experience in their department, in their field, in their graduate students, and what gets you know published. And um, and they have really stepped up to trying to change and transform those disciplines and their and their practices within the department. And so that's been amazing to see, you know, which are not like, like I said, fields that we would normally think of as the ones that would have to be concerned with these issues, but they have been, um, you know, and I think in other fields in the humanities and the social sciences, you know, because of our responsibility as a public university to create knowledge that's gonna have an impact on our communities and, 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 and those that, you know, literally are, are paying for uh, our salaries, um, there's been increased attention to developing scholarship and, and, and hiring faculty who can produce scholarship that is connected with the community that surrounds us and can have um, impact on, on the well-being of those communities. And so that's been another amazing change that I've seen certainly in the three years I've been in, in this position. So it's really interesting for me to see how the values of the university are beginning to reshape not just the scholarship, but how we evaluate the scholarship for promotion and tenure, um, how we prioritize hiring and you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how sustainable that is over the long term. Um, 
the college has, you know, again, made really in a short amount of time, made a lot of strides in diversifying its graduate students, its undergraduates and its faculty. Um, you know, but we'll see, you know, I think um, enough of us have lived through the cyclical nature of this, right? There was a burst of energy, a focus, um, uh, you know, a drive, and then it becomes so easy to kind of backslide into um, the usual ways of doing things. And so that's what will be interesting is to see, can we build this in a sustainable way for the long term and not for just another cycle? Um, I have to hope that we're in a long term, you know, that we're in it for the long term and not just in a cycle of, of change and then backsliding. Um, so, but we'll see. I, I'm, I'm too cynical about universities and their commitments in these areas to say, yes, we're going to do it this time. I, I don't know. I'm optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic that we're actually beginning to transform not just the, the academy and who we hire, who we promote, how we evaluate um, that work, um, but you know the disciplinary fields that, that shape the work we do in liberal arts and sciences. But again, cautiously optimistic. Right, and but it seems to me that um, you know from your work in Eric to do work now, there is a a very important aspect of your scholarly practice that has to do with building and growing institutions, and in particular building and growing institutions that redress inequality. And there is a lot of talk about having, you know, in, you know, taking advantage of this moment to do this, but there is less certainty in terms of how to do it. Mm -hmm. From the vantage point of somebody who has built effectively institutional change over a significant period of time, what lessons have you learned about what works and what doesn't? What works and what doesn't? Yeah, so what works is not doing it alone. Um, you really, it, it's a collaborative effort. Um, it takes certainly more than one person. Um, I don't have that kind of power. Um, I, I have to depend on, um, on people of you know, goodwill who are invested in this as, as much as I am. There's too few underrepresented faculty to have them, you know, to, to have those relationships just to be exclusive to underrepresented faculty. I have to, you know, you have to work, you have to identify those people who, who are invested in, in, in this as well. And, and they may come from surprising places from all over, you know, like my experience, all kinds of, you know, different genders and races and ethnicities and international identities. And so, um, you know, so I think that's the first thing I've learned is you have to build a coalition um, in formal and informal ways. Um, and the lesson learned about what doesn't work is it has to really be ground up. Um, you can't just dictate. You, I mean, you can create some incentives right? Um, you can create incentives about, you know, you can reward the, the behavior that, that, that is moving you in the right way. Um, but to really um, 
make change happen, it has to happen at the ground level. It has to happen um, ground up. It can't, it, it has to happen ground up and then be supported at the top. Otherwise it won't work. Okay. And then after all this time, thinking about these issues, researching them, writing them and creating institutions that try to redress these inequalities, if you had magical powers and granted one wish about how you'd like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? Ooh, I've been thinking about this question because <laughs> I knew you were going to ask it. Um, and I've gone back and forth a couple of different times. I think what I would love is um, to have it be more engaged with um, areas of outside of communication. You know, I, I think about like these iconically generative moments in the field and they, you know, even going back to like the media effects tradition, right? Where you had sociologists and psychologists and, you know, and sort of this convergence of these different disciplinary, um, you know, uh, terrains. And I think and for me, that's that would be my dream to have an ICA that, um, you know, to have a, a field of communications that was open to um, and engage with, um, you know, disciplinary approaches outside of the field of communication to answer and think through those questions that we have within communication. That would be my dream. I think that would be like heavenly. <laughs> So I would be so happy. <laughs> it would be my dream academic conference. All right. That, that would be certainly a fabulous academic conference. Thank you so much, Isabel, for sharing your journey and your wisdom uh, and experience with us. Thank you to all the listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to tune in to the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you. I enjoyed my latte. <laughs> You're welcome. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.